welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So I am so excited today because I am talking with Brooke Bergman, who is the newest member of the Zen Founder team. Brooke is someone that I have had the privilege of working with, I don't know, like over sort of on and off over the course of the last 10 years or so. Is that right, Brooke? Has it been that long? I think it's been that long because I was just thinking about the other day making food for you and Rob when Finn was born. Yeah, when Fisher was born, who is now 10. Wow, that's crazy that I just like, my brain did that. I was like thinking about Finn and it was like, no, it was Fisher. (laughs) That's the challenge of me having named my children (laughs) thematically. (laughs) Yes, yes. But I was just thinking about that the other day. And like, you guys had just moved to Fresno. And I was also thinking about the meal I made you. And like, I was like, I clearly wasn't a mom yet. You made Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Really? That's awesome that you remember Brussels sprouts. I was remembering that I made like some weird salmon thing that required like, extra like it was not like what I would have wanted it wasn't like a pop in the microwave and go (laughs) I was just laughing to myself because I wasn't a mom yet so I just didn't know (laughs) I'm pretty sure you made Brussels sprouts actually because I was like Brussels sprouts huh like I just wasn't a fan yet and I think it was like the gateway drug into my now deep obsession with Brussels sprouts oh my gosh I mean Roasted Brussels sprouts. I even have my kids liking them now. <laughs> yeah, I think you got me started right then. Oh, like, well, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So, in addition to being um, a Brussels sprout chef extraordinaire <laughs> slash dealer, <laughs> you are, and I'm now speaking to the audience, of course, an expert in relationships and definitely like one of my go-to people whenever I have a couple's problem, either maybe in my own life or professionally to just get a voice of sanity and a voice of expertise about how to help relationships be healthy and delightful and strong. And I'm so, so glad that you are working with us as Zen Founder to like be our couples person because many of the couples that I work with end up getting divorced. So I'm not sure I should. Oh no. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting uh, thing to sort of admit there, Sherry. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's the right choice for them, I will say. (laughs) You know, sometimes it is inevitable. And what I what I do occasionally is really actually help couples kind of make that call, you know, and sometimes it is the right call, you know, that couples have this idea of like staying together for the kids, that nothing could be further from the truth of what's actually good for kids. So sometimes it is the best choice and people can move on and, and grow and, and become an even better version of themselves. But sometimes divorce is a replay of old tapes and they're just going to replay that new tape with a new person. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's just going to be an endless cycle of torture and disappointment for themselves. And so I kind of help people discern like how to figure out if that's you, right? Like if that's, if divorce is going to help you move on and thrive or if divorce is just a dysfunctional old tape that you're playing through again. So ending a relationship doesn't automatically make everything better? (laughs) No, it really doesn't. In fact, that's one of the biggest myths that I help people dispel is that, yeah, when you divorce, you are not getting rid of yourself. Like, oh, I know, I know. Like, you are still you, and you bring you and all of your complexes and your trauma and your relationship history to the next new person. And maybe this new person won't have the exact same traumatic experiences that your last partner did, but uh, give it enough time and they will eventually trigger all of your old stories that are unhealed. And so for people, yeah, the idea that divorcing, it's, it's my partner that's the problem is really unfortunate because then they just go on to recreate the the same dynamic with a new person. Now, if people are wanting to divorce, now this is an, an interesting way of saying it, because they're actually confronting their old story, then sometimes divorce is a healthier way to grow, right? Like for some people, if they're in an abusive situation, part of the old story is I deserve this abuse, And so when they can begin to make the separation, they're actually rewriting their old story in the process and and creating a new one. So it it can be both and, right? And that's part of of what I kind of help people do is figure out if, is this an old story by getting divorced or is this a new one? And understanding that there's lots of complexity to these choices, of course. And we sort of started with the ending, but of course, a lot of what we, we did. do as a lot of what we do as consultants, especially working in the entrepreneur space, is try to prevent that whole conversation from happening by helping people to thrive in their relationships before they're having the conversation of should we even be doing this or not. And I know from your past work and our work together that you know, you have some insight into some of the really unique challenges that entrepreneurs experience in their families. When you think about a couple, let's take the simpler version for now, and then we can talk about dual entrepreneur families. But like when you think about a couple where, you know, one of those people is sort of deep into starting, growing, running a business, how does that, how can that shape the coupleship or family life? So one way I like to think of work or even entrepreneurial work is that now I'm going to use the word erotic energy is that one, the person who is building the business is devoting a lot of erotic energy to their business. Wait, what, what erotic? What do you mean? I know. Okay. So what I mean by that for me, sure. What I mean by erotic, and by the way, this is not solely my idea. A lot of psychologists have this idea. Freud himself, because at libido, Esther Perel, she talks about erotic energy, and I really like the way that she uses that description. And it's the, the idea that you're pouring life force into this thing, right? And so 
businesses by their very nature require a lot of erotic or life force energy to be poured into it in order for it to sustain itself because it's, it's a baby, it's a living organism, right? And so naturally, I think the spouse, if so we'll talk about the other spouse who's not an entrepreneur in that situation, who doesn't sort of understand how how much this is going to require can feel jealous. <laughs> and then they can begin to sabotage their partner's business uh, because they, just like, you know, if I'm jealous about this other, right? And if I'm not handling my jealousy well, I might unconsciously sabotage this other person's thing because I can't handle the amount of energy that's being poured into it because I want some of that energy. Right. If all of that life force, that juicy, generative, life-giving energy is getting poured into something else and you're the spouse kind of watching that happen, that can feel depleted. Or, Or like I've talked about the business as the other, sort of that you have this other lover who gets all of your creative ideas and your wooing and your, you know, chocolate and roses go to the business. Yes, exactly. The chocolate and the roses go to the business. Meanwhile, the partner is watching their partner come alive and and thrive in their business. And on the one hand, they're really happy for them. They're like, oh my gosh, that's, that's really awesome. But then the problem is, is that the, the entrepreneur often might not have enough reserves, right? And they haven't figured out like how to then give some of that life force energy to their relationship. And, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why they might not, but some of that is just the all-consuming nature of entrepreneurial lifestyle. And so, you know, I know that's why you and I are both passionate about working with this population is because I don't think it has to be one or the other. I actually think that people can have it all. <laughs> I agree. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, I'm going for that too. Like I, and you know, I watched like people that do seem to have it all, not seem, but the ones that actually do, right? Like things are more sustainable for them in the long term. And I think when I say into having it all, it's that there's an aliveness or that sense of erotic energy or life force that permeates across the parts of my life. That's what I'm going for. That's what I'm right. thinking. So that in my my business or my entrepreneurial work, there's this sort of like spark and energy, but that also exists in my relationships and my parenting life. That's at least what I think of when we're talking about having it all. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I do. I think what happens with couples sometimes is that the business or work becomes the place where they feel that spark. And then they don't know how to have that spark with their partner or with their kids or just even at home, right? Doing the dishes. And so then they they inevitably, right, just keep going back to the thing that does give them that spark. Instead of figuring out how to infuse vitality into all areas of their life and become what I think, I love Dr. Siegel, he talks about the integrated life, the integrated brain. And to me, that's what I 
I want to help couples move towards is a sense of integration, that they get to have that vitality and that spark and that erotic energy in all areas of their life. And then all areas of their life are then not sabotaging other areas. (laughs) So yeah, let's think about this, this kind of maybe archetypal couple of one person is like really riding the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial life. So one minute they're elated because they got this great endorsement from an influencer. And then the next minute they're like plummeting because signups on their latest course haven't taken off. So they're, they're in it, right? Right. Downs, sort of perseverative, always thinking about it, working on it. And then they have this significant other who's like, Hey, I'm over here. Like I'm supporting you, but like, really? We're talking about this at midnight on Friday? Like, really? So what's, what's your starting point, Brooke, when, when these people are sort of lodging their complaints of like, you know, one person doesn't support my business and the other one's like, one person is like, all they care about is their business and I'm like a real human right here. Pay attention to me. Right. So where I like to start with people is to figure out like where the connection is going. It's not just that I'm mad that you're talking about this business thing at midnight. It's that I don't seem to matter, right? And so there's two things going on, right? Like there's the the partner who may actually be ignoring the other person, (laughs) right? And then the other person is maybe not speaking up about their needs in a way that is healthy or functional, like they, they're probably waiting too long before they say something. In fact, I think that's a big part of why couples don't connect is because they wait too long after they're already upset or hurt and they don't just say it in the moment and take care of it and then move on, right? Like if my partner was talking to me about something at midnight and the connection was already pretty solid, I'm going to have the freedom to say, hey, babe, that's super awesome. Can you stop and like whatever it is I need from him in that moment? But if I can't do that, if I don't trust that my partner can respond to me. If you don't trust that there's a recipient there who can hear your needs and attend to them. Right. Yeah. So then it comes back to... And I teach all of my couples this about attachment theory. And, you know, what what style is your attachment? And generally, the more secure you are in your attachment style, you're able to speak up about your needs more clearly and in a way that the other person wants to respond, right? Like if I, for example, let's go back to the partner who wants to talk about, you know, business things at midnight, right? If I'm not securely attached, I'm kind of anxious, but also maybe a little bit avoidant. I might anxiously and angrily like yell at my partner for not paying attention to me at midnight, which like, as you can imagine, goes really well, (laughs) like for the other partner, right? Like, (laughs) right. That's a great way to get the affection and attention and sensuality you might be seeking. Right. Yeah. Like, and people do this, right? Like, and I will say, I work with a lot of women. I'll say like, how well does it work when you complain to your man about everything he's not doing? I found that slamming doors really leads to a lot of like, 
delicious closeness. <laughs> totally, right? Like yelling at him about how much he sucks as a man and how he's like not pleasing you. Like, man, get to the heart of a man's like <laughs> deepest. It doesn't work with their mojo, I hear. It really doesn't work with their mojo. And so like, and vice versa, right? To men, like if you say to your, and excuse me, we're talking about heteronormative situations here. And uh, I don't mean to exclude anybody. I just work with primarily men and women. You know, men, if you're like yelling back at your partner because they're uh, critical and like, I can never do anything right. Like we're off to the races, you know? So (laughs) the point is to get really clear about what you want and need from your partner and don't do it in a gamey kind of a way. But people don't know how to do that because they're already too resentful and they don't trust that their partner is going to respond. You were saying, you know, before we hopped on something like couples wait on average, like seven years before they go into therapy or before they go and see a couple specialist, like seven years of crap sort of built up. Yeah. Seven years is, I forgot who, I mean, I don't know how these people study this, <laughs> like, but I'm, I am not in academics now, but I get to read their reports and, and yeah. So couples wait on average about seven years between the, the identification of the sort of longstanding pattern or issue and the time that they actually decide to get help for the issue which is a long time to sort of live in misery and a long time to rehearse negative patterns and rehearse negative habits, you know, because relationships are about habits and they're about systems and they're about cycles. And you can almost, if you're conscious, right? And that's the point of coaching work is to become more conscious and aware of what you're doing so that you can make different choices, right? Because a lot of people, they just get into the same dance over and over and over again. It could even be about different topics, but it's really the same discussion over and over and over again. And underneath it all are attachment concerns, but people just don't recognize it as such because they think it's about the money. What the other person did. It's about what the other person did instead of, right? And this is the hard work. And this is why couples work can be so hard, both for the the couple and the coaches, because we're trying to get people to get really honest about their fears. In ways that are really scary and uncomfortable. This is a really scary and uncomfortable because I, I haven't tried that with my partner, for example. But oftentimes that thing that you're most afraid to say is actually the key to getting what you want from your partner. Or, right, and this is kind of what you alluded to in the very beginning of our conversation is, oh my gosh, I I actually can't give that to you. You know, and I think that's why this work can be so tenuous and scary is because sometimes the answer from our partner is, I can't give that to you. And so then the question for the partner who's asking becomes, okay, now what? (laughs) Like my partner, I've just told them it's midnight. I don't want to talk about this. And, And it's not just that, right? It's, I don't feel seen. I don't feel noticed. Right. And then that reminds me of list all the times that you've been ignored and 
unseen and I don't really want to go into that right now. So it, it can bring up all of that. And so when our partner is unable to respond, right? We, we say unwilling, but most of the time, I actually want to reframe that for couples and say, no, they're just unable for whatever reason. And we don't know what those reasons are at that moment in time. It could be a whole host of things. But now the person who's asking has a choice. Yeah. You know, are you going to be able to live with that in the moment and self-soothe? Right. Like one thing I work with a lot of couples on is how can you actually give to yourself what you're asking of your partner? You know, because a lot of times I think that people are projecting onto their partner what they actually need to be giving more of to themselves. But that's hard to say, and it's hard to give to myself more love, more time, more even affection, right? Because we're so hard on ourselves. And so we're asking our partner to do that for us. And this is why I, I mean, I personally think that a romantic, intimate relationship is the vehicle for the most interpersonal growth you can ever do in your lifetime, if you let it be. If you let it be, right? If you're open to it, if you let yourself grow, you invite that of yourself. And I think that can be one of the challenges, on, honestly, for working with entrepreneurs is that they're already engaged in, for many of us, that very deep soul opening kind of growth just by just by daring to put a little bit of themselves into the world and the, their business. And I think that's where you mentioned a few minutes ago, sort of this, you know, that life force or that energy, like there's already this openness to being like reshaped and reformed and extending oneself. And it can make the world feel almost like perhaps maybe too fragile when you're doing home and at work too. Yeah. And I think, right, there can come into play that whole vulnerability hangover. I love that, that word. So my, my significant other, he owns a ski company and then he's also a fine artist. And so he talks about the vulnerability of painting and, and how, I mean, he's actually said this, you know, that I would rather walk into a room naked than show my paintings on the wall. Like it's that vulnerable, right? Like, and it's this idea that you are exposing the deepest parts of yourself, right? Either as an artist or as an entrepreneur, or a lot of times people are both, that's my significant other, right? So all these levels of vulnerability. Yeah. And then And then you come home and your intimate relationship is saying like, I need you to crack open even more. And people just lose it. Just walking around bleeding at some point. Totally. (laughs) Oh my God. Let me put it all back in. Put it back in. Yes. Like how can I just like, I just want to like be walled off and safe. (laughs) Like instead of constantly sort of exposing myself and growing, right? Like. But on, the, but on the other hand, like, that's where then I feel like people need to resource themselves, right? And build resilience and build their tolerance for that vulnerability, right? And that's where I think that's where you and I come in. Yeah. <laughs> like, how can we strengthen your ability to tolerate all this exposure, right? And like, how can we make this safe for you? Did you ever meet Dr. Charles House? 
Matt's dad? I did, yeah. I met him right before he died. So I kind of said hello and we exchanged names and he said, well, Sherry, it's nice to meet you. I'm I'm dying. <laughs> I have leukemia and I'm not going to be around much longer. Yeah. And then I moved into his office after he passed away. That's right. Yeah. So that man has greatly shaped the way I understand relationships and therapy and coaching and all of that. And one of the things he said to me that I'll never forget was because he was my supervisor and he said, Brooke, everybody is just trying to stay safe. They're just trying to get safe or stay safe. And so I think that people just need to sort of learn how to be safe at greater and greater levels of vulnerability, right? And both the entrepreneurial journey and the the intimacy journey requires increasing levels of vulnerability or it falls apart. It just does. And the answer isn't to hold back. Right. And like artificially create safety for yourself, a grasp at safety, but to grow stronger in your ability to be safe in increasingly risky, emotionally risky experiences. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the, this couples thing, I mean, so I practice, I'm going to digress a little bit. I do this, I call it feminine movement practice, but it's, um, it's designed by Sheila Kelly, who's an actress out of Los Angeles. And she designed this feminine movement practice that's based in pole dancing and erotic dancing, but it also incorporates modern and Pilates and yoga. And she was a dance major, so she couldn't help but infuse it all. But one of the things that she talks a lot about is the work that she does with her husband. And to say they have a beautifully erotically charged relationship is an understatement. And you can really see how they, they promote each other and they lift each other up. And by diving into that vulnerability and that intimacy, both of their careers thrive. In fact, you can watch them on, um, uh, her husband is the producer and actor and he's Richard Schiff and he's on The Good Doctor. And so now she gets to like be on the show with him. And, but part of it is because they cultivate a sense of vulnerability and intimacy and eroticism in their relationship that I think a lot of people could really benefit from. And I know she, she's been one of my she doesn't teach at the Orange County studio, but I've been in her presence and I go to the LA studio from time to time. And her work also influences some of my ideas about that and just watching her and her husband work and how they use that erratic energy to bring a spark to everything that they do. And I think what you're, what you're sort of talking about as you, as you talk about that sort of literal motion and dance and movement together is that even the more figurative dance that we do in our lives with our significant other, where there's a, a coming together and a moving apart and there's a sense of rhythm, but there's also moments of solo and there's moments of, of erotic and moments of tender and the, the ability to sort of fluidly move with one's partner is a deep part of what makes safety possible 
in moments of risk. And I think that as we work with couples, so much of it is helping people dance well together and sort of tolerate that coming and going, the moving toward and moving away. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Tolerate the coming and the going and the moving away and the coming together and playing with that, right? I love the dance metaphor. Um, I've danced off and on throughout my life in different different forms. And it's really a very visual way of showing what couples do together because they're dancing whether or not they (laughs) go to dance classes or not. Hopefully to like the same rhythm. (laughs) Right. And that's, that's actually the goal, right? Is that couples will learn to read each other's cues and then respond and then say what they need to say. And then, right, like in a way that's cohesive and coherent, because a lot of people aren't telling their story to their partner in a cohesive, coherent way because of past traumas, right? Both in their original relationships, right? And I'm talking about, you know, with your parents and your family, But then if you had a series of dysfunctional relationships in your 20s and 30s and beyond, if you never learned how to coherently say what you need to say, it's going to be tough to have a coherent relationship. I mean, your partner is going to sense that the withholding, they're going to sense the withholding, right? And I'll just call myself out. My significant other tells me that I withhold, (laughs) you know, and I don't do it even consciously, right? It's just something I learned when I was little, you know, I, I learned that people didn't want to hear what I had to say, or they were too busy or whatever it was. And so I just, I was just quiet. You know, and so then he'll just say, like, you don't tell me anything. And I'm like, oh, like, you want to know? Like, (laughs) what a new experience. Yeah. Yeah. What a new experience. And it's a challenge for me to share more, right? Like, but the beautiful thing is that I, I get to lean into that, you know, it's not easy, but it's really healing to risk something different right? And to know that I'm safe enough to do so, right? But that's the trick is that I've grown. I've done a lot of personal work. I have a lot of ways that I build my resilience, you know, just in my own life to know that even if I risk and share more than I'm comfortable with, that I'm still going to be okay because I'm not a seven-year-old little girl anymore. You know, I'm a grown up. I'm a grown up, but it's still, it's still really healing to give him and myself that opportunity to heal and to grow by risking and saying like, I'm, I'm going to try this new way of relating. And it's really new for me. Well, I think it's quite a gift to be a grown up who can learn new ways of being and learn new stories and even learn to interact or dance with our partners in new ways. And I think especially, you know, given the pressures of running a business, of being an entrepreneur, of we haven't even like sort of touched on the challenges of doing that while raising children, it can easily feel like all of the energy is is sucked up into the business of the day, which of course is it can be death to to an erotic relationship, to a, a relationship with someone that you want more than a transactional experience with. 
So I'm um, so glad that you're, you know, on board with Zen Founder and, and around to help couples have these like more complicated, really vulnerable conversations. Oh, me too. Well, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. I'm happy to be here too. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health bootcamp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.